Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, radio host Lee Garrett hasn't been willing to take a death threat seriously, but the sabotage of some radio equipment and vandalism of his car have given him second thoughts. Now, Chapter 4. Lee's childhood memories included a few pets, a cat, a couple of dogs, a goldfish, and he'd once rescued a baby squirrel that had been pushed out of its nest, a red squirrel, small and hyperactive, just the right size for a borrowed hamster cage, though the squirrel only used the exercise wheel as a shortcut from one impenetrable wall of the cage to the other. Lee kept the cage near a window, close to sunshine and fresh air. One day he'd come upon a disturbing tableau. A neighborhood cat was perched on the window ledge, greedily eyeing the cage. The squirrel was madly racing inside the wheel, desperate to escape. Lee chased the cat away and made sure never to leave the window open, but the cat returned time after time, calmly watching through the glass. Lee would pull the window blinds down, but his mother would forget and leave them up. The squirrel stopped eating. Within a week, it was dead. You think the cable was deliberately cut at the craft show? Lee shrugged at Maddie Ellis. Yeah, a heavy object wouldn't leave that clean a cut, and it wasn't any place it would be pinched or flexed. Wire cutters are my guess. But why not just disconnect the cable? It's easy enough to do. Whoever did it wanted to cause us more inconvenience than that. Maybe take you off the air for the rest of the night. Ellis's face was tight. Are you thinking it may have been the same person who sent you the hate letter and vandalized your car? Doesn't take a genius to put two and two together. It's time you told the police about this. Station property has been damaged, and there's a chance someone broke into the building to leave that note. He nodded and stood to go. Lee, if there's a nut out there, he could be just toying with you so far. Be careful, okay? The station's secondary production studio was unoccupied. A few minutes of hunting produced a beat-up telephone book. He punched in the number for the police general information line and sat down in a ratty office chair with some of its foam showing through a seam. There were a few instructions to follow from the automated system. Then the voice that came on the line was younger than he'd expected, the How can I help you? straight out of an operations manual. I'd like to speak to someone about a harassment situation, Lee began, then realized his explanation was going to be complicated. Not a sexual harassment or anything. I... Relax, sir, and just give the details. Your call will be recorded. Lee identified himself and began to recount the past few days. Put into words, it sounded trivial, but the police officer was earnestly helpful. Let me check with the duty sergeant on this, Mr. Garrett. He put Lee on hold and some soft music played down the line. A moment later, a carefully modulated voice began to deliver a message about road safety. Four such recordings played before the original voice came back on the line. Mr. Garrett? Yes? From CTBX, right? I told you that, yes. There was a hesitation before the man continued. Was that another voice in the background? Are you sure the letter wasn't a prank from one of your co-workers? As I told you, I asked them. They denied it. Did you ask everyone who works there, all of the staff? No, but... Then it could still be a prank. I don't think so. What about the cut cable at the craft show? A cable that could have been cut by a cart or equipment dolly running over it. There are lots of those around a place like the Exhibition Center, Mr. Garrett. 
we can send someone to take a look at the damage to your car, but you say it was at a hockey tournament with lots of kids from out of town? Officer, are you saying none of these things is worth pursuing? The thing is, Mr. Garrett, in the first two cases, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that a crime was committed. As for scratched paint and flat tires, I'm afraid that kind of thing happens all the time where kids gather. There's not that much we can do except open a file on it. When Lee didn't respond, the man said, I'm sorry. Lee slowly dropped the phone into the cradle. The cop had sure lost interest in a hurry. But he was right. Lee had no proof that any of the incidents were related. Even if he had, what did he really expect the police to do? Assign him a bodyguard? He shook his head and tried to push the whole thing from his mind. There was still work he could do at the station, or he could just go home. But when he thought about his empty apartment, the image that came to his mind was a broken toaster. A couple of hours later, as he was packing his gear away in his locker, he heard his name over the paging system, summoned to the front lobby. He stepped into the hallway and almost collided with Chuck Norwood. Did you hear the page? The station's promotions director asked. On my way now. Well, if you're lucky, I won't see you again today. Norwood grinned and moved off down the hall. It was the dark-haired woman from the craft show, looking even more attractive in a business-like plum-colored jacket and skirt, set off by a white blouse with just enough frill at the collar to make the outfit appealingly feminine. She was examining the Lee Garrett cardboard cutout. His mind hunted for words that would start them off on a friendly note. Hi, it's a pleasure to see you again, if a bit of a surprise. I didn't think you'd remember me, she said through tight lips. You're obviously a man with many more important things on your mind. His offer of a handshake was ignored. Look, Ms. Ross, Candace Ross, the boy who was such a big fan of yours is Paul Schwartz. Yes, I remember, Ms. Ross, and I'm very sorry. You'd have been sorrier if you'd seen his face, she interrupted, her cheeks coloring. You were a hero to him, and you acted like he didn't exist. He didn't even cry. I wish he had. She noticed her fingers twisting together at her belt and consciously moved her hands to her sides. I'm very sorry, Ms. Ross. I had a sudden, serious technical problem. I lost contact with the radio station just as I was supposed to go on the air. Paul must have seen what happened. Her head snapped up. Paul didn't see anything, she said. Paul is blind. The shock on Lee's face seemed to mollify her. You really didn't know that? He gave a slow shake of his head. I really didn't know that. I noticed something different about the way he looked at things. Didn't look at things, I suppose. He cleared his throat. The technical problem was urgent, and there's more to it than I feel like explaining right now. Just please believe that I didn't mean to snub him. The woman's face was a study in contrast. She wasn't yet ready to forgive, but she wanted to believe the apology was sincere. Do you want to make it up to him? She asked. Oh, what do you have in mind? Visit him. Come to see him personally. Lee blinked. Miss Ross, that's what I thought. Goodbye, Mr. Garrett. Wait. I didn't say I wouldn't do it. When, when would you want to schedule this visit? It would be best if you came with me the next time I go to his house. I'm his orientation and mobility instructor, from CNIB. Do you know it? He nodded. O&M means I help him learn how to get around on his own. Paul only lost his sight three months ago. He was accidentally hit in the side of the head by a bat while playing baseball. At first it was only his right eye that was blinded, but his left soon followed. They do that sometimes. She stiffened her neck. I wasn't going to visit him again for a few weeks, but sooner might be better. A surprise, I think. That way he won't... 
She gave Lee a furtive glance, as if embarrassed. He won't get his hopes up, in case I don't show, he said it for her. I'll be there, Miss Ross. Let's set a time right now. They agreed on the following Monday at 4 p.m. when Paul would arrive home from school. Then Candace Ross gave a quick nod and marched out of the building. He watched her with a stab of regret. Her frosty attitude would take a lot to thaw, but it might be worth a try. The visit would be a major pain in the neck, but to refuse it wasn't worth the risk that she'd badmouth him to her circle of friends. He couldn't afford to lose any listeners. Wednesday was Dave Berg's last day. He'd accepted a job at a station in Windsor with its huge Detroit market across the river. Lee spent a few minutes reminiscing with him on the air after each of the newscasts and paid him some sincere compliments, along with a few that were exaggerated. He offered to put listeners on if they wanted to call in a tribute. No one called. Although Lee had worked with Berg for four years, he couldn't really say he knew the man. On any given subject, they disagreed more often than not, but it was important to get along in the insular world of a radio station, and they had, most of the time. After his last newscast, Berg suggested they go for a beer later, and Lee agreed. Both men knew it probably wouldn't happen, and it didn't. The next day, Berg was gone. The morning show routine carried on without a hiccup. Larry Wise, the news director, recorded the CTBX newscasts in between his live casts on Z104. That would get them through until Dale Lawson came on board in the new year. Once Christmas week arrived, the stations ran on a skeleton staff anyway. As Lee passed the reception desk after his production shift, Karen handed him a package. He opened it to find a box of Kellogg's cornflakes and a handful of leaflets that fluttered to the floor. Oh, good. Breakfast and some reading material to go with it, he said as Karen helped him pick up the papers. Eyes off the cleavage, she muttered. You cut me to the quick. Nice bra, though. I like black. She slapped his chest with the gathered sheets, trying to suppress a grin. They're about breast cancer, she said. Barry and Sandy got the same thing for Z-104. Bras, breasts, they've got my attention. She cuffed him again as he turned away and began to read the introductory letter. It was a special edition box of cereal, with tips for healthy eating on the packaging. Kellogg's hoped Lee would mention it on his radio program, maybe even air a full interview about the promotion. He remembered something similar from a few years earlier and approved of companies that attached their brand power to social issues once in a while instead of some overhyped Hollywood movie. He wasn't naive. He knew it was an exercise in public relations. Mentioning it would make him look good, too, but it didn't merit a full-fledged interview. He'd racked up lots of brownie points lately anyway, giving plenty of coverage to the United Way campaign. At the wrap-up luncheon in half an hour, he'd be accepting a small plaque for CTBX and Z-104. It should have had his name on it, but an award to the radio stations was politically wiser. He stopped at his locker to grab his jacket and tie and shrugged into them on his way to his car. United Way functions provided some of the community's most fertile ground for networking. The cavernous upstairs hall of the Caruso Club was packed, Lee was seated between one of the most powerful union leaders in town and the deputy fire chief. "'You still wake me up every morning, Lee,' Dave Richards said with a rock-solid handshake. "'Half our union membership, too, I think. Doubt if you get many favorable write-ups in the press these days, though.' Richards nodded toward a table against the far wall. It took a moment for Lee to recognize Elliot Dean. The man had lost weight and let his hair grow." Recently reinstated as city editor at the Star after a failed attempt at politics, Dean would never be president of the Lee Garrett fan club. 
You were right, though, Richards continued. That extension to the highway bypass was a white elephant. Dean should never have hitched his political star to it. Too expensive, and it wouldn't have created enough local jobs. Especially not public sector jobs, Lee thought. He'd trashed the bypass project on the air for all of those reasons, but also because it generated terrific buzz on the CTBX Facebook page. Deputy Al Truman leaned over. A lot of big investments went up in smoke when the bypass plan was sunk. Richards nodded. One of my guys told me there was even mob money in there. Sure, Dean resigned from council for health reasons. He knew what was good for him. And he blames me, Lee thought. He shrugged it off. He knew more than half the people in the room. They couldn't all like him. Even so, they all applauded when he collected his plaque for Media Partner of the Year. He allowed himself to bask in the brief glow. As the gathering began to break up, he sensed someone beside him. Lee Garrett, how are you? You don't remember me, do you? Lee stifled a groan and looked at the young man with the outthrust hand. Closely cropped blonde hair with a reddish tint capped a face that bore a hint of old freckles on young skin. The teeth were as perfect as an orthodontist could make them, and blue eyes hid behind a pair of fashionable wire-framed glasses. His clothes spoke of money, too. I'm Eric Van Horn. I shadowed you once, my grade eight shadow day. We've met since then, too, but you didn't remember me that time, either. I guess I have a forgettable face. Lee vaguely recalled a shy boy who sat in the back of the control room most of the show and had to be coaxed to say anything, none of it into the microphone. This college boy with the confident manner didn't match those memories. Eric, sure, I, I'm sorry I didn't recognize you. Did you change your hair or something? I guess I've grown a few inches, too. Anyway, I just wanted to say hi. Maybe you'll remember me next time we meet. The kid was determined to rub it in. It's nothing personal, Eric. I'm not good with names. Take it easy. Better bundle up, too. I can see the wind's picked up out there. Van Horn turned in the doorway. Don't worry. I've got my bowling ball cover to keep my head warm. He disappeared around the corner. Lee didn't get it right away, walking slowly to the coat check room. Then he cursed and ran out to scan the parking lot. There was no sign of Eric Van Horn's blonde hair. He jogged a few steps and looked up and down the street, but the kid was gone. Bowling ball cover, God damn it! The choice of words couldn't be an accident. Van Horn had nearly quoted his skins joke verbatim. Was it just another case of a listener trotting out something they'd heard on the show to prove they'd been listening? Van Horn had said, To keep my head warm. Tossing out the tidbit of information like a table scrap to a dog, he was calling himself a skin and thought he was untouchable. He was goddamn right. The cops wouldn't do a thing. Lee swore a cloud of steam at the car windshield and bullied the cold engine to life. He'd parked in a far corner of the lot to hide his vandalized car, only hastily touched up until he could talk his insurance company into a new paint job. Had Van Horn enjoyed a good laugh over that? By the time he reached home, his anger had settled into nausea. He couldn't be certain Van Horn had anything to do with the death threat. The cocky young prick might identify himself with bigots, but it didn't mean he'd left the hate note. There were plenty of other suspects. Apparently, in over twenty years of broadcasting, he'd gathered enemies like a dog gathered fleas. He felt a chill in the pit of his stomach. They couldn't really want him dead, though. Surely not. Embarrass him, hurt him, yes, but dead was forever. He glanced down at the cornflakes box on the counter. Breast cancer. That was how his mother had died. For most of her struggle, he'd been halfway across the country. He wasn't even there when she finally lost the fight. The memory was a taste of gall. 
He scanned the Kellogg's letter for the telephone number and made a note to himself for the next day. Maybe he'd give them a full interview after all. That's the end of Chapter 4 of Dead Air. Now our episode continues with Chapter 5, as a company Christmas party reveals the ugly undercurrents of Lee's radio world. The answering machine was flashing when he awoke from his nap. He punched the callback button. What's up, JJ? You never call me at home. Hey, man, no emergency. Just calling to see if you want to share a cab tonight. Tonight? Oh, shit, I forgot all about it. What time does it start? Hell, I guess you go to big parties all the time, but to us peons, it's a big deal. The sportscaster laughed. Cocktails at six, dinner at seven, and you know the company only springs for the drinks before dinner. So you intend to be there the moment the doors open. I get it. Sure, call a cab. I'll be ready. Lee hung up trying to remember the last time he'd looked forward to the staff Christmas party. Junior announcers were paid peanuts. For them, nothing was more attractive than an open bar. In the cab, J.J. gleefully speculated about which of the guys would be first to become falling down drunk and which woman would show the most flesh. Lee laughed and confidently chose Doug Rhodes and Tracy Banderjee. He knew J.J. had a thing for Tracy and hoped the kid wouldn't get his heart broken. When they arrived, the bar already looked like the surface of a fish tank at feeding time. Rhodes was just abandoning his first empty beer bottle and reaching for a fresh one. Tracy Banderjee appeared in a tight red sheath of shiny material ending well above the knee that contrasted perfectly with her chocolate milkshake skin. When she contrived to pick an imaginary piece of lint from her nylon-covered shin, the low neckline left little to the imagination. She had the body for it, and Lee couldn't deny a stirring in his belly. "'Nice dress, Tracy,' he said. "'Must be that spray-on material I've been reading about.' She smirked at him. He craved a scotch, so he took a beer. The carbonation might slow him down and keep him from getting blasted. He was too old to court a hangover." The rest of the party-goers gradually straggled in, most dragging spouses who looked as comfortable as vegetarians at a barbecue. Lee ended up sitting with the senior staff for dinner, as usual. Ellis liked it that way, and he didn't mind too much. He had a lot more in common with them than with the young crowd. But it bothered him to see Barry Wright ushering Shelley Henderson over to their table. Shelley was Lee's favorite of the station's remote hostesses, a great sense of humor and mature for her age which was half the age of the Z-104 morning man. What was Wright thinking? She was too young to drink, too, but Lee doubted that the coke in her glass was pure. She was smiling too much. He shrugged it away. Watching for stuff like that was Maddie's job. Roast beef buffet again, Maddie? he asked. What else? The corner of her mouth pulled up. Don't you remember the time we tried to do something different and went with a tie menu? Everybody bitched for a month. Pay for the drinks after dinner, and they'll never remember enough to complain. Dream on. Paying for the cab rides home is a much better idea. The worst part of the seating arrangement was that it encouraged shop talk, and Arnott wasted little time getting onto the subject of some recent research he'd read. When the meal was over, Lee ordered a glass of scotch instead of the second beer he'd meant to have. The lights dimmed, and the hired DJ began cranking out noise with a painful bass thump. As Lee tried to escape the worst of it, he bumped into Matt Miller. 
He hadn't seen Miller since the hockey tournament, and his friend wanted to know why Andre Menard and Ken Cousins had taken such pleasure in trashing Lee that night. Yeah, well, it's tough when everybody loves you, Lee said with a straight face. He looked at Miller, and they both burst out laughing. Lynn Miller appeared out of the crowd looking beautiful in a blue satin gown and firmly took her husband's arm. I don't know what you two are giggling about, but Matt has a husbandly duty to perform. Right here, on the dance floor? Miller got a cuff on the shoulder. I gave up on that years ago, Lynn said with a wink at Lee as she pulled her man into the jostle of bodies. Soon afterward, Mel Smythe and his wife began to make their farewells. Staff parties could be divided into three groups— the young party animals whose aim was to get drunk as quickly as possible, the older shop-talkers who drifted from table to table repeating the same old stories, and a third group who always left early, seemingly embarrassed by it all. Lee ruefully acknowledged that he'd soon be relegated to the middle category, as he stood on the fringe of a group listening to Larry Wise. Wise even made his voice sound like a newscaster at parties, for God's sake. He was gay, you know. I worked with him in Swift Current. Hobart, he was a fucking Dan Rather, for shit's sake. A half dozen beers hadn't helped Chuck Norwood's language. Oh, yeah, had a boy toy in Regina. A room at a hotel every Friday, too. Station contra it for him, for Christ's sake. It was in his contract. The newsman shook his head. He was cool, though. You couldn't break his concentration. Like lighting his news copy on fire, Norwood asked. I've heard that bullshit story about at least five people. No, Wise smiled. We never tried that one on him. Although somebody did pull that on me at my first station in Smith's Falls. Burned all the hair off my goddamn fingers before I could empty the trash can and drop the papers in. Only about ten seconds of dead air, too, but I did have to cut straight to the weather. His audience chuckled on cue. One thing I remember we did to Hobart. Lanny Smith was leaving to go to Lethbridge, I think. Hobart was taking his place. Anyway, Hobie had grown this little beard because he thought it made him look older. And on his last day, Smithy walks into the booth during the noon cast, pulls out a can of foamy, and starts shaving Hobart right on the air while Hobart's trying to read the obituaries. He went ballistic in the newsroom after, throwing stuff around and threatening to punch Smith out, but he never broke up on the air. Wise hoisted his beer in tribute. One of the young reporters said, "'Wasn't it Smith they got with the stripper in Windsor?' Wise nodded and swallowed a mouthful of brew. "'Yeah, Bud Borland and I got him with that one.' He looked around at the uninitiated. "'Borland and I hired this stripper for Smithy's birthday "'and sent her into the booth during the eight o'clock cast. "'Big knockers, and before the days of silicone, too. "'She starts peeling, and his eyes keep getting wider and wider, "'but God love him, Smith keeps on going.' The sweat's breaking out on his face, and she's so close you can hear the mic bracket ring as she tosses her blouse onto it. Then just as he's going into sports, off comes the bra, and she waves these big beauties right in his face. Wise laughed and gulped more beer, pausing for effect. Norwood took the bait. So what happened? Well, Wise looked thoughtful. He probably would have made it if he hadn't been doing the football scores. Houston over Tittsburgh, 38 to 24 to 38. The group roared. Even Lee joined in, although he'd heard the story a couple of times before. He knew it was mostly true, but Wise had picked it up secondhand and given it a better punchline. Try a stunt like that now and they'd can your ass, somebody said. 
Too fucking right, Wise nodded. Lee took that as a cue to drift away. A scuffle in the corner of the room caught his attention, and he was surprised to see J.J. angrily shove his way through the crowd, while Dan Arnott stood against the wall, looking sheepish. What was that about? Lee asked him. Arnott looked confused. I was just trying to warn J.J. about Tracy, about the way she strings guys along. Shit, Dan, how did you think he was going to react? With her nearly falling out of that dress, his balls are putting out hormones like Florida puts out orange juice. You want to talk to him, talk to him on Monday. Come to think of it, he's never going to listen to that anyway, so save your breath. Little sluts like an animal in heat. Doug Rhodes slouched nearby with half of his shirt hanging out. Lee glared at the man in disgust, then turned and walked away. He needed some air. In fact, he needed to go home. It was nearly midnight, later than he'd planned to stay. He'd call a cab and then grab his coat. As he stepped into the doorway of the dim cloakroom, a sound made him stop. A moan. Somebody was among the coats. A man with a beard. Barry Wright. Then the light glinted off strawberry blonde hair and green fabric. Shelley Henderson. Lee watched in dismay as a black bra strap slipped off a milky shoulder. God damn it, what now? Was he supposed to rush in and rescue the girl's virtue? It didn't look like she wanted rescuing, though she was probably too drunk to know what she was doing. He cursed again under his breath and began to back away. Then his mind formed a picture of the scene with his daughter Sarah instead of Shelley. In sudden inspiration, he thumped his fist along the wall, clattered some metal hangers together, and bellowed thickly, "'Where the fuck's my coat? Goddamn hotels ought to put some fucking lights in here!' He tugged his coat noisily off its hanger and stomped down the hallway. When he paused beyond a corner, he heard the girl run from the room. He slumped against the wall for a moment, then pulled his collar high and stepped out into the cold. The light on his answering machine was flashing when he entered his apartment, he thought about ignoring it, the call of his bed was strong, but he gave a sigh and pushed the button. It was Sarah. Daddy, I hope you hear this soon. A friend from school decided to visit her folks in the Sioux for the weekend, so I tagged along. But we stopped for a break at a restaurant here in town, so if you call my cell before 11, I'll stay with you instead and catch a ride back on Sunday. But she has to get going again by 11. Are you home, Daddy? Call me. Numbness gripped him as he looked at his watch. He called the number anyway, but all he got was her bored voice on the recording, asking him to leave a message. When the beep sounded, his voice caught in his throat. There was nothing he could say, no way for words to fix what had happened. The phone tumbled free as he slumped to the floor. He hadn't seen her since the summer, wouldn't see her again for God only knew how long. She'd be gone at Christmas and back at school right after. He was too late, too goddamned late. He held his head in his hands and cried. Chapter 6 of Dead Air sees Lee go with Candace Ross to visit her young blind client, Paul Schwartz. The trip is a pleasant surprise until things take an unexpected turn for the worse. You can learn more about Dead Air, the radio business, and how to buy your own copy of the book at scottoverton.ca. Thanks to audionautics.com for the music, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode. I'm Scott Overton. <laughs>